Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Boston is known for its diverse roster of venerable institutions, many of whom have helped define the city through the decades. But probably a lot of people wouldn't think of the local branch of the NAACP as one of those institutions. But in fact, the Boston branch NAACP, this year celebrating its 100th year anniversary, has helped shape this city in a fundamental way. Well, that was then. What about now? And what about the mission and the issues facing other branches of the NAACP across the state? Joining me to talk about the challenges that face the NAACP are Michael Curry, the NAACP Boston Chapter President, and Reverend Talbert Swan II. He is president of the NAACP Springfield, Massachusetts branch. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. Thank Uh, you for having us. Oh, yes. Hi. (laughs) Let me start with you, Michael. Um, You took over as president of this organization, and it's it's uh, fair to say that uh, it was off the radar, you know, off the off the screen for anybody, and everybody wondered why you were even interested in doing it. So now you're celebrating this year, just a few months uh, after your election, the 100-year anniversary of the local uh, branch here. What first is the sort of status of social justice as you look out from an NAACP lens right now? Um, you know, it's interesting. I've been uh, on this tour since the election to meet with other civil rights organizations. So I've had an opportunity to sit down with uh, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, uh, some of the Jewish organizations that have been involved in this work. Um, you know, I'll be meeting soon with ACLU. I mean, you, you go across the list of folks who do this sort of uh, civil rights, social justice work. The reality is, is people have been doing the work. Um, but I don't think there's been a unified effort to carry on what I believe is sort of the next leg of this movement uh, to, as we say, finally right, wipe out the taint of race, racism uh, in our institutions and in, our, in, our, in our, and in our attitudes. So I think we're at a at a key point. Some of these organizations have new leadership. Uh, there's some young attorneys like Rasan Hall at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. Um, the we've been meeting with Mara Healy from the AG Civil Rights Division. So I think there's an opportunity right now to really pick up that baton and really start to run again and and address those issues that have not been addressed around social justice and civil rights. And to you, Reverend Swan, uh, to Michael's point about new leadership, uh, you are newly um, positioned as the head of the NAACP Springfield branch. Uh, It's I should note that uh, both you and Michael are in your 40s. This is a definite shift (laughs) in leadership for both these branches. as you look out in Springfield, what's the status quo there in terms through a through an NAACP lens? Well, in Springfield, we we we're just a microcosm of uh, the rest of the nation, and and we face some of the same problems and concerns as many other urban centers <clears throat> in our city. Uh, we've had leadership that has been in place for a number of years. Um, some of it has become stagnant, and. Um, with that stagnation has come a level of apathy on behalf of the citizens who have been looking for some new and fresh leadership, um, folks who had some energy that are going to lead us in a new direction. Um, And so I think that's what I I bring to the table and the new leaders that have come along with me uh, with the NAACP to kind of breathe some life in terms of social justice advocacy in our area. Now, what happened uh, in both of your cases is that the local branches sort of, uh, well, I I think it's fair to say, fell apart. You know, um, uh, low membership, nobody's talking about the NAACP, uh, 
folks are going about their business, it seems to have been a relic in both cities, both in Boston and, and in Springfield. So now you've taken over, you've re-energized, you've got some new members going. So how do you define the NAACP for today? I'm going to ask both of you to answer that. And I say that because if people hear the name, it, it has a certain resonance, but it speaks of the past. Right. So how do you how do you redefine it for today, Michael? So what I've said to a large number of people at, like uh, Reverend Swan that I brought on board, many in their 20s and 30s and some in their 40s, is that we have to make that connection for our new members uh, and for our new volunteers. So we say to them, if you've ever been stopped by the police and you feel like your rights were violated, you need the NAACP. Uh, if you felt discriminated against at your job or in a housing situation, you need the NAACP. Uh, as, as as commonly talked about lately, public accommodations with the Peggy O'Neill incident and the Cura Lounge incident. Well, we should explain that. Those are both uh, uh, lounges, uh, nightclubs in the city that uh, have been sued, both of the owners, uh, for uh, discriminating um, against persons of color who yes. were uh, trying to in both cases, enter the establishments. Yes. The Cure Lounge has been settled. The Peggy O'Neill case, I don't think, has been settled exactly. yet. Okay. Exactly. And part of the point that we make to people is that this is not uncommon. You know, I think uh, part of it is we've gotten, as, as uh, Reverend Swan said, apathetic. We've gotten accepting of some of our circumstances. If you're in line and, and the two white patrons in front of you do not have to show their credit card, but um, their ID with their credit card, but you get up and you have to show your ID, that's a public accommodation violation. We should be pursuing that and holding those institutions, those entities accountable. And we haven't been. And I think that's the connection where you draw new, draw new members in and you draw new volunteers in because they get that. Uh, Reverend Swan, how do you redefine the NAACP today? Well, I think um, your point is poignant in terms of people tying the NAACP uh, to the past. I, I mean, it, it was formed partly in response to uh, some of the um, horrific practices of the past, the lynchings and race riots and such. Uh, but as as Michael said, uh, when you look at the current issues that face communities of color today, um, we know that the NAACP is still relevant. Uh, we still have problems in terms of uh, having um, our, our rights to equal opportunity are protected. We still have problems with um, with trust and integrity in in law enforcement, um, there's a big assault on on the basic Fourteenth Amendment right. Uh, we still have uh, issues around racial profiling and uh, discrimination and all kinds of other initiatives. And so, when people really look at the circumstances of today uh, and they see that there still is a glaring disparity. Uh, in how persons of colors are treated in every facet of American life, uh, then they understand that the NAACP is relevant and there is a need for its type of advocacy. Though, Reverend Swan, what happens is uh, I hear a lot of people, you know, I go to discussions all the time about various topics and social justice comes up in some of these discussions and, and folks say, gee, I wish there were some of the single issue kind of coalescing issues that brought folks together in the heyday of the NAACP. But today we don't have those issues. Uh, Reverend Swan, how do you respond to that? Well, you know, we do. Um, um, the recent um, 
uh, murder uh, uh, of Troy Davis is is an example. Um, the, the fact that we've got Troy Davis uh, about, was uh, it, uh, had the death penalty in Texas so let's, and in uh, Georgia in Georgia. Sorry. And um, lots. Of, I need to explain this for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. Lots of people came out in support uh, of him because many of the eyewitnesses recanted their story, said that is not the gentleman who did it. Uh, he should not be put to death. Uh, various other folks came out with some new evidence and, and urged uh, right up until the moment that he was killed, uh, that he should not be, uh, he should not have to have the death penalty because there was just too much doubt about it. And in fact, as he was being injected or electrocuted, I'm not sure what they do in Georgia. His last words were to the executioner, "I did not do this. I am innocent." Right. So now continue. <laughs> so you, you you have issues like the Troy Davis case, and 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 that is one that received a lot of um, public attention. But there are many other cases like that that occur in America all the time. We've got an assault on basic voting rights. 34 states across the nation are proposing legislation uh, to disenfranchise voters and targeting voters, most of them voters of color. So we do have those marquee issues um, uh, that are taking place in America on which we can rally around and which we need entities like the NAACP to galvanize the people around. And, and if I could just add to that, Kelly, I think, uh, as Reverend Swan said, the issues are there. But I don't think we as an organization, and I say I own that as an individual within the organization, haven't made a compelling argument as to what those issues are and what our role is in, in the, on those issues. We have to be seen as the advocacy um, uh uh, organization for communities of color, and we haven't done a great um, a great job of doing that over the last several years, particularly in Boston. But that may be true in pockets throughout the country, though the at- national organization has been pretty effective at it. So I think the opportunity to have Reverend Swan in Springfield, Ravi, uh, who's the president, and Ravi Perry, Ravi Perry in in Worcester, mm-hmm. uh, me in Boston, and many many others that I talk to across the country is now we bring a new modern up to date voice about these issues. And we can connect them. Uh, I don't know Reverend Swan's background, but I come from the projects. I come from the inner city. Um, the tone, the, the, the rhetoric, the, the conversation I have around these issues would be much different than those who are 60. And I think that's the new, the new phase of this movement is this. How do we connect it to people, bringing it in a language that they can understand and they can identify with? Reverend Swan, what is your background? Well, I, I, I come from the hood myself. Um, um, I, I'm born and, and raised in Springfield, Massachusetts, went to school at the University of Massachusetts and on to seminary from there. Uh, come from a large family um, and and faced uh, many of the uh, issues around racial profiling and uh, and discrimination issues growing up myself. Um, so I've experienced it as a black man in America, as most black men have. Uh, and so I, I think I stand in between generations uh, where I did not uh, quite make the civil rights generation. I'm not quite in the young generation, but I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in a middle ground to kind of bridge the gap between the generations and see the value of the struggles from the civil rights era as well as the concerns and the issues of the younger generation. All right. We have much more to talk to you two about, and we will do so on the other side of the break. We're talking about the NAACP, 
The Boston chapter is marking its centennial this year. We're looking at the challenges the NAACP faces here in Massachusetts in our so-called post-racial times. I'm speaking with Michael Curry, the NAACP Boston chapter president, and Reverend Talbert Swan II. He's president of NAACP's Springfield, Massachusetts branch. We'll continue the conversation after the break. Keep your dial on WGBH, Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank provides private and commercial banking and investment management and trust services to individuals and businesses. You can learn more by visiting bostonprivatebank.com. And Portsmouth Abbey School in coastal Rhode Island, providing a rigorous academic curriculum in a caring, co-educational, Catholic, Benedictine boarding school environment. You can visit portsmouthabbey.org for more information and Harvard Bookstore and their author event series. You can find more details online at harvard.com. Harvard Bookstore, proudly supporting Writer's Almanac, weekdays at 7.50 on WGBH. On the next Fresh Air, we talk about soldiers who have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan with catastrophic IED injuries. These injuries are leading to advances in combat medicine, but also stressing the VA health care system. Our guest will be veteran war correspondent David Wood. His new series, Beyond the Battlefield, is published in the Huffington Post. Join us this afternoon at 2 on 89.7 WGBH. Hi, I'm Emily Rooney from WGBH Radio and Television, inviting you to join me at our studios in Brighton on November 3rd for an evening of conversation with Bob Edwards and Jim Lehrer, a longtime anchor of PBS's NewsHour. It's your chance to talk politics and journalism with two of the most trusted names in broadcast news. Seating is limited. For tickets and other information, visit wgbh.org slash box office. Hope you can join us. Innovation. It has a huge impact on business and life here in the Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Join me each week for Innovation Hub, the big ideas happening in Boston. Saturday mornings at 7 and Sunday nights at 10 here on 89.7. Welcome back to the Callie Crossley Show. If you're just joining us, we're marking Boston's NAACP centennial with a look at the challenges facing the NAACP here in Massachusetts in the 21st century. I'm joined by Michael Curry, the NAACP Boston chapter president, and Reverend Talbert Swan II. He's president of the NAACP's Springfield, Massachusetts branch. Now, you both alluded to this, but let's talk about it a little bit more, about the new role that you're trying to initiate for uh, the NAACP, because when you talk about some of the issues as you both have articulated them, I think a lot of people might hear, well, that's these are all legitimate issues for you to tackle, but aren't there already other organizations doing so? So, and there was a period of, a period of dormancy for both of these branches, and folks went on. Is there really a, a role, capital R, uh, for for both of these branches? Michael, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think I think mm-hmm. one that's a, a, a misconception that there are other organizations doing this work. You know, if you look at health disparities, there are organizations that are dealing with disparities in healthcare, but not many, if any, in the city of Boston, black organizations or organizations of color 
that are the voice for communities of color around the disparities. And that means holding the disease organizations accountable for the resources they put on our community, holding providers, uh, holding anyone that's dealing with our community accountable for, for how they're dealing with those health disparities. If it's uh, economic uh, development within our communities, what is that central voice uh, that's out there advocating for investments, for jobs within communities of color. So there are organizations that are broad organizations, but what we've been missing is the NAACP at that table. That's a unique voice. That's a, a voice that's not new in Boston. It's been around for 100 years. And, um, you know, it was around when Lenny Alkins was president in the 90s, uh, early 2000. Uh, we're just re- re-energizing that voice. We're just making sure that we had all, all the tables where these discussions are happening with all the critical issues that impact our community. Before I go to Reverend Swan, why is the NAACP's voice unique? It's unique in many ways. One, because we represent communities of color, I think. So we have a, a, a deep understanding of issues of importance to communities of color. Uh, we have a, a deeper understanding of the civil rights struggle. Uh, so when we enter the table, we know um, a, a, a deeper understanding and investment in making sure that there's some some result that improves our community. I often say uh, there's a saying that I think is kind of the underpinning of politics in this city and maybe even throughout the world, which is if you're not at the table, you're on the table, Mm. uh, which I think is a powerful phrase. So when when the pie is being cut up, uh, when resources are being allocated, who's there representing communities of color? And I think that's the voice that we're returning to the table. So, Reverend Swan, weigh in the NAACP's unique role and its role now uh, as redefined. Well, I think Michael summed it up very well. I I think there are no other organizations that exist. I know not in my city that that speak uniquely uh, toward the issues that affect communities of color. And and when we look at the direction of of Springfield, um, we understand that when, when, when we have I uh, had to fight for ward representation because we could not get more than one person of color elected to the city council and basically had to sue the city um, so that communities of color could be represented in the city. When when we still have um, uh, a school system that does not have one African-American male principal and has very few African-Americans in um, administrative level positions, when we look at... Um, uh, the hiring disparities, the disparities in uh, health Michael just talked about. We've got a biomass plant um, that is planned to uh, be built in a community of color in Springfield. And uh, the unique voice that was needed at the table uh, to try to fight that was the voice of the NAACP. So it has been missing for the past eight to ten years, but it, it definitely there definitely was a void and a noticeable void uh, that is now being filled with the resurgence of the branch. Uh, Reverend Swan, you ran for the presidency of the of the uh, Springfield branch 15 years ago. I'm wondering what is different now about what's on your agenda and if you can be specific about how you are articulating the agenda uh, in Springfield right now. Well, I, I don't I don't think much is different in terms of the overall agenda. I think I've 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 somewhat matured uh, and grown since that time. Um, Darnell Williams uh, became the president at that time 15 years ago, uh, and shortly after his departure, the branch uh, had a sharp decline. Uh, I I think the issues uh, are very much uh, similar to those that existed uh, 15 years ago. Um, Our our voting rights, which is something that that we've already um, tackled, 
uh, the, the wide disparity in health, uh, the disparities in terms of uh, public financing. Uh, for example, uh, the community development block grant monies that come into communities of color, uh, you could put every dollar that came into the African-American organization together and combine it, uh, and it did not equal the amount that went to a single organization in the broader community. And so those are the type mm. of issues that, that we're looking at um, and that we have to fight against in our city. Uh, and I think the agenda is the same. Um, the NAACP's uh, 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 wide mission um, for so many years uh, has been to um, prioritize the political, educational, and, and the social economic equality of communities of color. And that's what we're fighting for in Springfield and around the region. Uh, Michael Curry, same yeah. uh, question to you about, I mean, you've been working in uh, affiliated with the branch here over the years, but, you know, different um, position now. Mm -hmm. But what is your specific agenda right now as you go forward? Well, I think, you know, the, the thing that people don't understand about the organization is that our contributions are, are many. Um, when I bring on a whole host of, I think I have 21 now, uh, was 19 as of today, is 21 executive committee members. And they represent, they're chairs of all the critical issues in our community. I have a housing chair, an education chair, a youth uh, council chair, and I can go on and on, labor and industry, economic development. Their charge is to be our voice in the community. So they attend community meetings. They're, they're speaking up and stepping out on issues. Um, most importantly, aside from us being present just in the many conversations, is the, the point I often make is we get a lot of discrimination complaints. And the reality is if you met with MCAD, the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, and the Attorney General's Office, and any other agency that is, is waiting to receive discrimination complaints, they don't get in many cases as many as we do. So people, for some reason, haven't trusted those institutions to go directly to them or they filed complaints and then waited patiently and, and in many cases frustrated because there was no response to the complaint or they didn't find probable cause to take the investigation further. What we've done now is develop strong relationships with each of those organizations and said, hey, we're going to funnel complaints to you. We're going to raise the profile around employment discrimination or public accommodation. And I think that's a huge victory. And that's happened just in the 10 months that we've been in office. We get hundreds of complaints a year, and we're probably at around responding uh, timely to about 60%. And that's no great thing to celebrate, but for where we were about a year ago, uh, we should be very proud. And hopefully by early next year, we'll get 100% of those complaints responded to. If we can do that, have a presence on all the issues, then I think we've done a great job just in the first year. And then we have much more stuff that we need to accomplish within our mission. Well, let's talk about the much more st stuff to do, because uh, anyone listening to this conversation would say, OK, yeah, you've mentioned a lot of stuff that that seems to be needs to be addressed. But, gee, are, isn't the context different now? Uh, aren't we in a space where uh, so many uh, wonderful accomplishments have happened? I mean, I'm not even talking about uh, <laughs> Governor Deval, Deval Patrick being governor and that uh, President Barack Obama being president, but in general, for folks of color across the board, is not, you know, things are just different and better overall. So within that context, then, uh, now, is it as, as bad as all that? Is there, I'm thinking, uh, some maybe personal anecdote that you can share that, that would demonstrate that there is, uh, in as you've said, a long way to go? So, Reverend Swan, do you want to... Reverend Swan, you want to take that? <laughs> 
Well, well, you know, um, uh, that's an interesting question. And uh, apparently uh, uh, when President Obama was elected, it kind of transformed uh, the word racism into uh, a taboo word, mm-hmm. a word that 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 couldn't be mentioned uh, unless, um, you know, we had to acknowledge its existence um, and forcefully, you know, confront and overcome its it, the pervasiveness of it. Uh, and so there are those who contend that we live in this post-racial uh, America. Uh, that is anything but the truth. Yeah. Um, all, all we need do is is look right here in in our cities, uh, in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, on the night the president was elected, uh, three young white men uh, got some gasoline and went to an African-American church that was uh, in the middle of new construction, about 85 percent built, um, poured gasoline and burnt it to the ground in response to a black man being elected uh, as president of the United States. That didn't happen in, in Mississippi, in Georgia, Alabama. That happened right here in Springfield, Massachusetts. Our school system is about 75 percent Latino and African-American. The dropout rate is above 50 percent. We've got 10 middle schools that are chronically underperforming. But yet, if you drive five miles down the road to Long Meadow, uh, the test scores are through the roof. The graduation uh, rates are high. What is the difference between what's happening in Longmeadow and what's happening in Springfield? And if Springfield was a community that did not have a school system predominantly consisting of students of color, would we see the same type of numbers. And so, I mean, you don't need to look far to see that the issues are there, the problems exist, uh, and the need to address them is dire. So if I can add to that, I think one of the things that I made sure I shared this with both our our attorney general, uh, shared this with DA Dan Connolly and many others, which is this whole notion about inequity. So, you know, Reverend Swan talked about and touched upon the education inequity. And the reality is many of our kids are not getting a competitive education. And what does that mean for social mobility? What's the impact, the long-term impact on our communities, our families? I often say to them, to the DA, to the AG, if you didn't live in Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, and we know that the drug use rate the uh, drug sale rate is rampant across the country, no matter what community go, you go to. But for some reason, the arrest rates are higher in communities of color. And what does that mean in terms of locking these young men and women out of, or out of jobs for really the remainder of their lives? Some will get jobs, but many will now have to seek alternative ways to make money. Uh, and they made a mistake when they were 15. Or, or they tried something when they were 17. And what does that mean for our communities when we are disparately impacted by the enforcement of the laws? And I think I always say to people, drugs is bad no matter where it is, um, but the enforcement of it is disparately impacting communities of color. So part of our job is to speak truth to power, to be in the rooms, raise these concerns, and make sure that we hold people accountable uh, to to make sure that there's equity within all the systems that impact our lives. And I think, you know, again, to your point, Callie, I think it's really a matter of we need to be in the street. You know, we need to be in the meetings. We need to be on the street corner. Uh, we need to do what the NAACP has been good at for over 100 years, which is make our case, bring our case to the public. Uh, and I think you win over minds and hearts that way and you get people involved. How do you view something like the Occupy Boston, New York, uh, every place else movements uh, th- that seem to be infused with a certain level of 
energy, the kind of protest energy that may at one time have been uh, associated with an NAACP. As you look at that, uh, do you think about this is the kind of energy we'd like to capture and bring back to us, or uh, how do you view it? Well, I'll jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Reverend Swan. Well, you know, I think it's positive energy. I, 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 I think it, it's, it has the potential to grow into a movement when you look at uh, the conversation that is going on around um, uh, around the poor today. Um, I, I know that, that although I don't have a great amount of agreement with it, I know Tavis and, uh, and Cornell West did their, their bus tour and others are talking about the issues surrounding uh, the poor in our country. But what we do realize is that the majority of those that are poor are persons of color. Um, and so when you look at movements like that uh, and you juxtapose them against movements like the Tea Party where you have middle class folks who are jumping up and down and screaming because you have a black president in office, I think that this has the potential um, to serve as the antidote to some of the vitriol that we see coming out of those movements. And I know it's, it's receiving a lot of criticism, but I, I look at it as a positive thing. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I think, you know, advocacy, uh, mobilization is all a positive thing. You know, the Tea Party has sort of um, dominated the scene over the last few years, and I think it's time for other movements to step up. Uh, This whole distribution of wealth conversation is one we need to have. Um, I know that when I talk to the folks that I know personally that have been out there protesting, um, they come to it with a sincere spirit around what this country needs to do to be a better place. So I think, you know, in terms of that being a broader movement, around distribution of wealth and, and uh, the joblessness rate and, and so forth, we as a NAACP have to, to gather that same energy within our communities around our unemployment rate, in many cases being three times the state unemployment rate. We have to get people on the street about that. If I could just touch upon the health disparities of thing, we should be upset that we're dying and suffering uh, at a much higher rate than anyone else. And it's something that can be prevented. We have to get that kind of energy that gets people back on street corners, that gets them to city council hearings and and state legislative hearings, that gets them back at the White House lawn. We have to get that kind of energy back because that's how policy changes. And we shouldn't be intimidated by that as black folks. You know, no one's uh, criticizing the Tea Party for for advocating for their issues. But yet, as people of color, we sometimes feel a little reluctant to speak up when, in fact, we should. Uh, Reverend Swan, uh, to, to Michael's point, uh, you've been clear that the NAACP as an organization going after uh, certainly institutions that are in the way of progress, as you see it, that it also that you are going to hold the community accountable. I wonder if you touch on that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's no doubt that we have to go after institutions um, um, that uphold a lot of the uh, desperate treatment that we see uh, in communities of color. But then at the same time, uh, we preach a message of accountability and responsibility to uh, communities of color. While we, while we will hold the superintendent of schools and the school committee uh, and teachers and educators accountable for the quality of education for our young people at the same time, we're not giving parents a pass uh, in terms of them preparing their young person at home, being involved uh, in in the PTOs and taking on their own responsibility as parents. And, and the same thing goes with the community. While 
while we'll talk about uh, the problems with law enforcement and and how they police our communities. At the same time, we're going to hold the communities accountable when it comes to investigating crimes when everybody didn't see anything. And we and we and we mm-hmm. uh, adhere to this crazy um, um, stop snitching uh, kind of mentality. So w- we definitely uh, plan on holding the community just as accountable as we hold um, uh, those that are in power. Michael? So, yeah, we're, in, we're directly in line with Reverend Swan and what the Springfield branch is doing. Uh, it's policy on one side, and it's what we own is on the other. You know, we're about to launch a campaign called Speak Truth to Violence, uh, and we'll touch on much of what Reverend Swan mentioned in terms of the community speaking out against the violence in their community. Uh, also, you know, the, the music that we allow our 5- and 7- and 10-year-olds to listen to, that they, their brains and, and, and their, their, their age is not adapted to hear that kind of stuff or see those movies. And how does that manifest itself when they're 15? Right. In terms of the violence that they perpetrate or could perpetrate. So we want to get back in the community and revive these conversations about taking our culture back, what we will and will not tolerate within our families, within our neighborhoods, within our communities. And I think we're about to kick that off. But the second phase of that, I call that Bill Cosby light, because what Bill (laughs) Cosby was missing in his point was the other side, which is none of this stuff is a historical. You know, we've been poor way too long. Uh, We've been the one left on the side of the road when other people came to this country and were able to progress and get jobs. They still did not hire black folks. Uh, And we have to have that honest conversation and that poverty, no matter what color you are, breeds some social ills, drugs, violence. And it's not new to African-Americans, especially in Boston history. So what we have to do is say, okay, now policy. We need to deal with the, the guns in our community, the drugs in our community. We need to get these brothers and sisters some jobs. Because ultimately, we can't solve these problems unless we improve their lives. Uh, So we can deal with what they own, but let's also deal with these institutions and these policymakers to make change. Uh, Reverend Swan, by your own definition, you are uh, post-civil rights, but the bridge generation. Uh, In these uh, remaining uh, seconds, make the case to young people about uh, why they should be uh, willing to uh, recognize the NAACP's newly defined role and mission. Well, not mission, one, but re- defined role. Okay. Well, number one, uh, they need a history lesson in, in, in that they could not enjoy the privileges and the freedoms uh, that they do today had it not been for the NAACP historically. Um, uh, secondly, all they need to do is look at their lives, look at the issues of concern in their lives, uh, such as racial profiling, uh, such as uh, discrimination, uh, and and then look and see what institutions in their communities are addressing these particular issues. And that makes the case in and of itself. And, and I think the case is being made. We, we, we get a number of complaints, as Michael alluded to, from the Boston branch, and an overwhelming number of these complaints are coming from young people who have been discriminated against in employment and who have had issues with the police. And so they understand that when I'm facing those issues, this is the institution that we turn to for help. Michael? Yeah, I say to young people all the time, we want leaders. You know, I think that it's it's one of the roles of the NAACP, aside from dealing with the issues, to create the next generation of leaders. We want advocates. We want people who can walk in to a city council hearing at age 15 and be our voice for the community. And in the Boston branch, we're launching a campaign to bring in more young people and then position them for leadership. Do as Reverend Swan said, teach them civil rights history, 
teach them NAACP history, but then equip them with all the tools they'll need to then be our voice. So as I say to all the young people, come on board, learn your history, um, be a part of this movement to improve your communities, as Reverend Swan said. And I think that resonates with young people. They want to be listened to. They want to be their voice for their generation. And we're open and willing, as we have been for many years, to inviting them in and letting them lead our community. Um, So we know a little bit about your individual histories and, and, and how you came to rise through these organizations and then take leadership. But I wonder if you could, you know, put your hat as president aside a little bit and just answer this question that so many of us wonder when we look at you all involved in the trenches in this kind of work. Why, Reverend Swan, is this work important to you? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm a product of the black church. I'm I'm a pastor. Um, I've always had a passion um, uh, for social justice advocacy from the time I was young throughout my uh, history in college, and when I got back to the community from college, uh, and so it was just something kind of kind of bred in me uh, through my parents. My mother was a, a community activist, uh, as well as my father, and. Uh, so it's just something that I kind of inherited. And above and beyond that, I I truly look at it as a calling that is on my life. Michael? You know, it's funny. I, I, I always tell people that you're qualified for this job in many ways. Um, you know, some people look at being an attorney makes me qualified to do this, though I don't think it does. Some people look at uh, being a longtime NAACP or an active makes me qualified. What I also tell people is there's another kind of qualification, which is I've come from a family, from a community impacted by all the stuff we're trying to deal with. You know, I lost uh, two nephews to violence on the street, an aunt to violence on the street. Uh, I come from families with drug addiction. My sister was a longtime addict. Uh, my mother was a housekeeper. You see the movie, uh, the recent movie. Um, oh, please. Uh, the Help. The Help. <laughs> uh, I was the one that my mother would, you know, take me to the wealthy family in Chestnut Hill and hide me in the basement because she didn't have child care. Um, I lived in communities where I saw people, many more uh, who didn't have jobs than the doctors and lawyers heading to work. Um, I come from the the communities with the mental health and the health disparities. So I think what propelled me was I went to college and I became active in the Black Student Union and campus. And I said, you know what, like many black students don't do, they don't usually, and I shouldn't say generalization, (laughs) many don't come back here. Mm, to uh, Boston. To Boston. That's right. They typically yeah. will stay in Atlanta and, and Florida and Chicago and other places. I particularly came back because I wanted to be, make a difference and I wanted to see if I could be a part of a movement here locally to change the circumstances for people who grew up like myself. And day one, when I got off the plane, I went to Gang Peace and Rodney and said, hey, I grew up around the corner, you know, a teenager living in the hood and I want to see what I could do to help. Uh, and I've been asking and stepping up since, since that time to try to be a part of it. Give me just uh, quickly, as we can conclude here, something said to you by one of your new members who've, or one of your reclaimed members in, in, in your uh, as the two of you have taken leadership. Uh, Reverend Swan. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, there was a, a former president uh, of our branch. He's he's in his 80s. Um, he came to me and he said, we've been waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I think that says that says it all they, that that the citizenry has just been waiting um, for the branch to take its rightful place in the community. And I think we're well on our way to that. Michael, this job is stressful. You know, I tell people I got more gray hairs in 10 months than I had in my whole lifetime. And I will tell you, and I talk to presidents across the country who say the same thing. And, you know, Lenny Alkins, who's the former president, was president for over a decade, uh, sat with me many times to get me 
energized and ready to do this job. And he said to me on many occasions, Mike, I got your back and we got your back. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing when you can do work and deal with all the stresses of this job, knowing that you got the elders behind you and maybe not all of them, but some pretty, pretty powerful people that got your back. And for me, that was the most reassuring, uh, motivational thing he could have said to me. Thank you both for an illuminating conversation. We've been talking about the NAACP. This year marks Boston's NAACP centennial. We've been discussing the long to-do list that the local NAACP chapters are dealing with. I've been joined by Michael Curry, the NAACP Boston chapter president, and Reverend Talbert Swan II. He's president of the NAACP's Springfield, Massachusetts branch. Coming up, we continue the civil rights conversation with stone carver Nick Minson. He worked on the MLK Memorial, which will be dedicated in D.C. this Sunday. We'll be back after this break. Stay with us.